Welcome to the ASBMR Speaks podcast. My name is Dr. Suzanne Jondeber, president of the ASBMR, and I am proud to present the only podcast dedicated to discussing the latest developments in bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal research. ASBMR is the Society of Basic, Translational, and Clinical Scientists that make observations that spark discovery with flow from the bench to the bedside and the bedside to the bench. This four-part series is hosted by Dr. Dolores Schoback, Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Throughout these episodes, we'll speak with pioneers in the PTH field. We'll explore basic PTH physiology, actions of PTHRP, PTH for osteoporosis treatment, and groundbreaking discoveries in hypoparathyroidism. The important actions of PTH are just one example of numerous discoveries that have been elucidated by ASBMR scientists, shaping fundamental understanding of bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal biology, and then harnessing this knowledge to improve human health. Be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to tune in to future episodes. Thank you for joining us. Good day, everyone, and welcome to our podcast uh, today with Dr. John Bilizikian. My name is Dolores Schoback. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm an endocrinologist, long interested in the endocrine aspects of bone and immediately crossed paths with our interviewee today, Dr. John Bilizikian. He joins us today uh, as the Carl Silberberg Professor of Medicine at the Vagelos College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. He's also Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine for International Education and Research. He's a busy, busy man, and it's uh, really a thrill to have you here to talk to our audience today about your, your career with PTH and disorders of the parathyroid. And so just wanted to ask you, John, um, to start us off by telling us how you got interested in this field. What, what led you to go down the path of PTH and what attracted you? And tell us how that all came about. Thank you, Dolores. And first, um, I'm really I'm pleased and honored to be part of this podcast series uh, for ASBMR uh, and to share with the audience um, our perspectives on our careers and uh, how uh, they developed and what were the pivotal moments. Uh, Dolores, I can go back to when I was a medical student uh, and uh, the Vietnam War was raging then. And one of my original mentors, Dr. Robert Canfield, um, brought, asked me to speak with him. I was a third year student and he said, um, John, what are your plans after medical school? And I said, well, I'll go into medicine and I will be an intern and then a resident. And he said, well, do you know there's a war going on? And I said, yeah, but it doesn't bother me. He said, well, you better think about it because two years into your house staff training, you'll be drafted into the war. You need to think about um, how to serve your country and get your career going. So he said, do you know anything about the NIH? I said, well, I've heard of the NIH and I had done some research at Harvard and MIT when I was an undergrad. He said, well, 
um, I'd like you to read a chapter. And he gave me the Williams textbook of endocrinology. And there was a chapter on the calcium metabolism by Gerald Arabach. He said, I'd like you to read this chapter and come back to me. So the next week I returned. He said, what did you think about the chapter? I said, gee, it's unbelievable. He said, um, do you know Gerald Arbach? I said, no, I don't know anything about Gerald Arbach except by his reputation. He said, would you like to speak with him? I said, what? He said, yeah, <laughs> get him on the phone. And I actually remember the telephone number to this day. Oh my gosh. Wow. He, gets, he calls Jerry and says, Jerry, I have this brilliant medical student who has really been uh, attracted to your chapter. I'd like you to speak with him. So I couldn't believe oh, that, that I was incredible. speaking to Gerald Arabach. And it was a very, he was very pleasant and, you know, maybe a few minutes. Then uh, Bob said to me, I want you to apply to the NIH, and I did. I had a choice of laboratories, and then this was at, I get, at the beginning of a, my fourth year in medical school. Um, I was interviewed by Jerry, and I said to myself, this is what I want to do. And so I was, luckily, I was matched to his lab as a clinical associate, and after my first two years of house staff training, I went to the NIH, and um, those were the pivotal moments. I spent two years with Jerry and he opened a world of investigation, knowledge, uh, rigorous thinking and the field to me. Uh, and it didn't take long for me to realize that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an endocrinologist. I wanted to study calcium metabolism. And then that then became sh in sharper focus because Jerry had just, um, well, within the past 10 years, had been one of the first people to um, develop the methodology to isolate parathyroid hormone. Right. And he and John Potts and Burson and Yallo, they were the first, uh, the second assay, immunoassay for a peptide hormone was parathyroid hormone in 1963. So Jerry had that uh, history. And uh, two years after I can't tell you how productive that period of my life was. Um, he taught me basic research. He taught me translational research and clinical research. Um, I had published 28 papers in the first two years, and I just was turned on. And I have to tell you, Dolores, I still am. Yeah. That was a momentum changer that um, has defined my career. That's, that's an amazing amount of productivity. I, I, those are uh, incredible stats for anybody who's listening and knows how, how hard we all struggle to get those papers published. That's, that's quite an amazing stat. So the relationship with Jerry, um, the sort of breadth of the research, which is surprising for today, right? I mean, rarely do you find someone who can really cover the scope of basic translational and clinical uh, but you found that there, I guess, and then moved into the moved into the clinical mainly, John, or or um, were you in the lab as well? Yes, well, Dolores. Then another momentous decision I had to make was whether to stay at NIH uh, after two years. I was invited to, um, but at the same time, I had an opportunity to return to Columbia. 
uh, to finish my house staff training and I was asked to be chief resident. So the decision point there was, um, would I go back to Columbia, finish uh, my clinical training in medicine uh, and that part of the promissory note was that I would immediately join the faculty after I was chief resident. I decided to do that against some advice that I was leaving the NIH too early. I was going to divert myself, divert isn't the right word, but some people thought I would divert myself back into clinical uh, medicine and lose the momentum. But again, here's another pivotal uh, uh, turning point in my career. Um, when I came back to Columbia, the chairman of the Department of Medicine and Bob Canfield <clears throat> provided me with a laboratory, money to do the research, to continue the research, uh, money for a full-time technician, and an arrangement where I would share the third year with another resident who wanted to work half-time because she had just had uh, a baby. So half-time while I was in medicine in the clinic, I was getting my lab going. And two years later, I had already applied for research grants and I already was funded by the end of my chief residency. So those were lessons that way back when um, I was doing basic research in those days, um, studying turkey erythrocytes right. and the beta adrenergic receptor and sodium and potassium transport and how that might have been related uh, to divalent cations and PTH. And at the same time, I was learning that there was uh, also a lot to be learned in the clinical arena and the work with hyperparathyroidism, which began in the early 1980s from NIH funding has continued to the present day. So I've been kind of in and out of the lab, but more recently, um, as you know, my work has been more clinically focused, but also with a, a translational focus as well. Right, right. And so those early days of PTH, you, you and your group um, really defined that disease as we see it in a contemporary way and have continued to really unveil the clinical phenotype of that disease, which I have to say, when I was in med school, I didn't, I didn't realize the scope of this disease. So, so you, 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 uh, you were able to get funded to do the clinical phenotyping, basically, of this disease. How, how, how easy was that? Or how did you know you wanted to do that? What inspired you, I guess? What's the aha moment there? Yeah, the, the, well, the, the, if there was an inspiration, it was a negative inspiration. Um, one of our colleagues, and I will not name him, a wonderful man, uh, had been interested in hyperparathyroidism in this way. Uh, again, going back to those days, we were appreciating that there were several clinical phenotypes of hyperparathyroidism, not just the bone stones and groans that we all grew up with, but that this new um, uh, appearance of people who were being discovered incidentally through screening had not been described at all. 
And the advice I had been given was, you know, uh, there's not much there. Why don't you get into something more exciting like PTHRP? Because PTHRP had just been discovered. And I, I said to myself, no, no, no. I think there's a lot to be learned by re-examining the skeleton and the kidneys and the neurocognitive and all the other protean manifestations, at least putative protean manifestations of this classic disease. So it was that kind of thinking that said, you know, we really don't know this disease called asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism, and I want to learn about it. So that's how it began and how it continues, as you know, Dolores, we're still, yeah. no, we're still learning a lot about how this disease presents itself. No, I think that uh, certainly the, the, you know, the crying need in the clinic is for the management of the really symptomatic patient from the standpoint of, you know, how do you prevent the recurrent stones, the fractures, the, you know, the altered um, psychological function and mental health. Okay, no question. But then the larger spectrum of this disease is really that milder or even completely asymptomatic form that we find so often now. And so I think that we all keep coming back to those classic papers that your group has uh, put together on this. And, you know, I, 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 I really think it was brave to try to characterize this um, back in the day. Um, but you have also kind of uh, embraced another aspect of parathyroid disease. And I, I want you to tell us how you got, uh, tell our audience how you got involved in that, the, the story related to treatment of hypoparathyroidism, a much more rare disease, but nonetheless a devastating one. Yeah, it's, a, it's another element in uh, career development, I would say. Um, I've always thought that life is a lot uh, based on theme and variation. Um, we have central focuses in life, and then we look for derivatives, we look for offshoots, we look for new angles. And this was an aha moment, I would have to say. Um, it goes back to the early 2000s, where so this was a good 20 years after my group had <clears throat> worked rather um, in the most focused way you can think of on this one disease. And I don't know <clears throat> how it happened, but it happened. <laughs> I was just <laughs> thinking one day and I said, wait a minute, there's another disease out there <laughs> and it's hypoparathyroidism. And, and then I started to think, well, what do we know about hypoparathyroidism? We knew almost nothing about hypoparathyroidism. So I said, you know, this is another opportunity to learn by, uh, again, varying the theme, not to forget hyperparathyroidism, but to add hypoparathyroidism, and as you point out, a rare but very, very important disease, um, not from so many points of view. Yeah. Uh, the, the rare disease space, as you know so well, Dolores, has become very hot and hypopara, I would say, has led the, the way for us to learn a lot about other rare diseases. So we did that. Um, I applied for my first NIH grant, I believe, in like 2003, 2004, 
and we had continuous funding from NIH, uh, from the FDA and other sources. Uh, and that helped to generate interest on the part of other laboratories that also, you know, we all then uh, contributed independently and sometimes uh, collaboratively to learning more about this other disease. But you know, I think John, you're, you're credited among that small group of parathyroid aficionados with having an aha moment about PTH replacement in this disease. And uh, I think the field thanks you for that, certainly, um, because you got you really got the ball rolling. So how how did that come about? Well, it's a very good question, and I don't I don't know that you know the uh, you know I'll tell I don't you know about, the answer. I'll yeah. tell you about how this happened. So it happened. We were in the midst of studying the disease, and we weren't even thinking therapeutically yet. Uh, how could we uh, uh, use parathyroid hormone? Uh, as a replacement therapy. I had a fellow uh, who had gone on to work for a, a small drug company. I'll, I'll name the drug company. It doesn't matter, I think. Um, the company is uh, was NPS, and they had just uh, finished a clinical trial of PTH1 to 84 as a treatment for osteoporosis. Although the trial was successful, there were issues. And the FDA asked the company to redo the phase three trial. And my former fellow uh, came to me and said, this company doesn't have any money. They were not capitalized sufficiently. And he said, let's go to the chief executive officer and ask him to consider studying PTH 1 to 84 as a therapy of hypoparathyroidism. And I said to myself, ah, aha, yes, <laughs> of course, we have to do that. So we, there was a dinner a week later, and um, this fellow and I um, asked to spend a few moments after the dinner with the CEO, and we convinced him that this would be very worthy. And as you know, uh, that's how that pivotal clinical trial got started. Um, again, you know, if you're, if you're open-minded as I was listening to my fellow and it suddenly occurred to me, it, it was the last classic endocrine deficiency disease for which we did not have a replacement for. And that was so obvious, but it took right. a while before we realized it. Yeah, absolutely. It did. But I think it's really changed uh, the whole direction of, uh, you know, the treatment of that condition and really brought a lot of hope to people who are suffering from it. And, you know, we, we both see them in the, in the clinic and, and we know that there's a renewed uh, joy uh, that there are therapies uh, coming online for that, that condition. So, you, you know, it's interesting, and I know our, our listeners are going to be interested as you talk about your group and you talk about your fellows and uh, your close relationships with both. How did you form your group or what's the advice you'd give our listeners about getting a group, a group around you to synergize with and work with and collaborate with? How did you do it? Yeah, thank you, Dolores, for that question, um, it, because it sort of uh, focuses on one of my great motivations um, in this field. And I have to go back to Jerry Arbach, who 
for a good 20 to 30 years at NIH, every year he trained a new person. And I was, you know, although only there for two years, I kept in very close touch with Jerry until his untimely passing. And I realized what he was doing. He wasn't just contributing new knowledge uh, to the field, but he was adding a generation of new people to populate the field. And I said to myself, I want to do that too. I want to train fellows. And as this happened, um, my first fellows then stayed and you know some of them, Elizabeth Shane and Shawnee Silverberg were among my first fellows. And for a good 30 years until COVID when everything seemed to have stopped, um, there was a new fellow joining the group. Some of them stayed for a long time, five or 10 years. Some of them stayed only for a year. Some of them came from local, like our endocrine training program. Some of them came from other um, programs in the United States. But for my career, more came from the world, from all over the world. And one of the things I'm very proud of is that I have built up a legacy of former fellows who have moved to the whole world and have started their own programs. So I think one thing we leave, yes, we leave what we've contributed on our own to the field and the search and quest for new knowledge is something we always are motivated by. But in addition, we wanna leave something else beside, behind and that is the new generation of fellows who will be inspired to continue the work that we have started. And in this regard, I think um, that is a legacy that I'm proud of that I've been able to uh, add um, to the field in this way. And the, the, another point I will make about our careers, be humble and realize that um, some of the brightest people are the people you are training, not because you're so bright, but because they're so bright. And if you can motivate them, they teach you and together you, you learn. And it's been that uh, uh, a motif in my life that we are a partnership. Yes, I'm older and they're junior, but it isn't that. It's we're working together for a goal and that is to contribute new knowledge to the field. That's, that's uh, quite, a, quite a legacy, John. You know, as, as we all um, kind of uh, continue to, to work in the field and, and experience sort of like what's going on in the broader scientific community, how do you, uh, how do you keep, keep your ideas fresh? And, and what have you heard or what talks have you gone to that have inspired you? How do you get inspired? Uh, you've shared with us uh, some of the experiences with um, fellows coming to you and repurposing, um, repurposing PTH one to eighty four and things like that. But how, you know, just thinking in the broader scientific sense, what would you tell our listeners about someone like yourself who goes to talks? What inspires you, and 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 what 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 interesting or exciting thing have you heard if if you were thinking about a new direction to go in? So the advice I, I might pass on in reference to your question, Dolores, um, may not be appropriate for everyone. But for me, it was good. Uh, and the advice I've always taken is don't turn down any opportunity. If you're invited to give a lecture, give it. 
If you're uh, invited to collaborate with someone, collaborate. Uh, and those are the uh, opportunities for you to learn and those doors will open. Uh, I'll give you um, a few very recent ideas. Um, the COVID example, um, we were all shut down and I went to my chairman just in March of 2020. And I said, you know, I feel like I can't do very much. I can't go on the wards. I can't take care of patients with COVID. What can I do? And he said, you know, our cardiology fellows have gotten very interested in the non-pulmonary aspects of COVID. That led to a just a panoply of, of new thoughts and papers in rather big journals that I helped our fellows write. And I learned so much about the endocrine manifestations of COVID. Just a few weeks ago, I, was, I gave a plenary lecture on the GI manifestations of COVID. Well, I'm not a gastroenterologist. <laughs> and I said, well, I can't, no, 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 I'm gonna read. And I read and I learned. And now I just had another opportunity uh, to learn. Don't pass up opportunities that will open windows for you. Even though you may become overloaded, you and I are guilty of being overloaded in that regard. Uh, on the other hand, you know, that's how we stay vibrant. And I will hope to be able to keep um, active, and hopefully I will, uh, with uh, that spirit in mind. Wonderful advice, really wonderful advice. Just thinking about what you might leave as sort of a parting sentiment for our listeners, what would you say, you know, that young people listening to how you built your career, what would you like them to take away? What's the key takeaway that you would give them? You've given us lots of nuggets of uh, gems of truth, I, but give me one key t- takeaway if you can. Yeah, yeah, so hard, that's very hard to, to encapsulate. But I, I think I would say to the new generation of our field, don't let people discourage you because it may be difficult. It may be difficult to get space for your lab. It may be difficult uh, for you to get uh, research funds. Um, If you are motivated and have the ideas and don't give up, everything else will fall into place. Don't listen to people who are discouraging because they're failing and you aren't. And remember, you know, if you follow your your own way, you'll get there. Lovely advice, really. Thank you so much, John, for sharing these thoughts with us today. It's really been just a joy to uh, talk to you today. Thank you. Dolores, thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of this series. And hopefully our thoughts will be of value to those who are listening. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASBMR Speaks podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast streaming platform. And stay tuned for our next installment coming soon.